is a whalebone. So if you stick your, that's soft and very slimy. That's much harder. Oh my goodness, yeah. And can you hear that? It's made of bone. You're hearing Joe Ellison, editor of the FT's luxury magazine, How to Spend It, standing on the banks of the River Thames in London with her fingers in a mushy block of wood. She's with a guide named Lara Maklem, an urban explorer who's showing her how to scavenge for treasures. So that's a um, whale's, I don't know if it's its rib bone. It looks like a rib bone, doesn't it? Wow. Hard as anything. Yeah. Why would there be a whale bone sticking out of the ground? Joe and Lara are mudlarking. Lara's written two books about it. It's an increasingly popular hobby in London, and it involves looking for fragments of history in the mud. Just around the corner from the peninsula is the uh, Greenland Dock, and that was home to the Greenland, London's whaling fleet, and they'd go off to Greenland to hunt the whales and bring them back to Greenland Dock to be rendered down into fat. Um, and so I found other whale bones out on the peninsula. This one here could have come from Greenland Dock. It's just, it's better than wood. It's lasted much longer. They're in an area known as the Docklands on the banks of the river in far east London. That Greenland dock was docking whaling ships throughout the 1700s. And that's just one bit of history that's still floating through the Thames. There are vestiges from London's role as a global port, like those whale bones and Hindu carvings. But also there are really old bits of everyday life, like ceramic tobacco pipes that Victorians would smoke through and then drop into the river, or medieval roofing tiles, or very old baby shoes. It does make you think when you're out there mudlarking whether day-to-day life hundreds of years ago was really all that different. I mean, it was. Of course it was. But we still walk along the river and smoke and gossip, even if it's vapes now instead of pipes. We still put shoes on our babies. We're just people wandering around trying to have a nice life. This week, we bring you two stories that connect the then and the now. First, we go mudlarking with Joe and Lara. Joe was so compelled by it, she commissioned a mudlarking fashion spread for the cover of How to Spend It this week. It's in the show notes. Then we talk about the staying power of games with our gaming critic, Tom Faber. We've been playing some games for more than 7,000 years. Why? This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Um, what is the most exciting thing to you that you've found? It's the things that are really, really personal. I've got a, a Tudor shoe um, that I found. It's a child's shoe. It's quite small. And um, it, the fact that it's still got these creases across it. And when I found it and looked inside, I could see the little toe prints from, you know, five, six hundred years ago. It's just incredible to me. It's something like that is 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 more valuable to me and gold and I have found gold coins don't really do it for me they do what they say on the on the tin really it's a coin you know you know exactly where it was made when it was made I don't find them that exciting it's the unusual things and the really really personal things things that people have scratched their initials on Joe hi and welcome hi how are you good thanks can we start with what mudlarking exactly is Okay, so <laughs> um, mudlarking is a term I think coined in the 18th and 19th century about people who would go and forage for sort of treasure or 
food or anything that they could sell from the mud flats of the Thames when the tide went out. And then I guess in the kind of modern era, obviously people are less scavenging for scraps by which to live, but they are looking more as a hobby. So it's become a kind of hobbyist activity. And I think back in the day, I mean, it basically was like a way for kids to stay out of the poorhouse. So it has really mm. sad and kind of slightly tragic social kind of connotations originally, but it's subsequently become this beautiful, mindful exercise, <laughs> people looking for an escape from the city. So you found yourself um, on the banks of the Thames. Can you kind of take me with you? So I met Lara about two weeks ago in a very, very cold January lunchtime at low tide down in Rotherhithe, which is at the far reaches of East London, um, down beyond the Docklands and kind of Canary Wharf area. And you go down onto these very, very slippery, very um, kind of slightly inhospitable beaches, I guess. <laughs> and you just stare at little teeny tiny bits of what <laughs> looks like kind of rubbish, frankly. And then Lara just kind of just magicked up all this stuff. And it was as though like the whole history of like Britain came to life on the wow. of the Thames. It was really phenomenal. I mean, it's, it's when you're with someone who knows what they're talking about, it's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, that blue? Yeah. So that's Delft. That would be 17th, probably 17th or 18th century. Uh, and you get a lot of oyster shells. Oysters with a protein for the poor. It's cheap. Uh, they don't live up this far, but they were um, fished out up in the estuary and brought up here. We were really famous for oysters. Even the Romans thought we were great for oysters and they'd barrel them up and send them back to Rome. So when you're looking, you're looking for areas that are... Um, eroding so they're, they're a little bit grayer than the rest so that's the patches that are eroding and when stuff comes out the river starts to sort it by size and weight so it'll wash up the pins and the small things the buttons small metal things together it'll wash uh, bones all together in drifts and then once you get your eye it's called getting your eye and you're looking for round things things that don't fit so nature doesn't make perfect circles and straight lines so you're looking for perfect circles and straight lines and once you get your eye and you do start to spot things, they just stand out. Lots of red brick, obviously. Not, no surprise there, I suppose. Bits of glass, tiny bits of tile and glazed pottery. Bit of an oyster shell. I'm just seeing lots and lots of rocks. <laughs> I'm, looking, I'm looking really hard. I'm terrible at mudlocking. What I really do love, though, is finding, is it hagstones, where you find a stone with a little hole in it? Yeah. Which I sort of think that's sort of one there, no? It just happens to have another little baby inside it. Yeah. They're millions of years old. It's a piece of flint that was yeah. created millions of years ago, so they have an enormous history, but they also have this sort of this folklore element to them, which is really, I think, lovely, because they're magical stones. They're called hagstones because people kept them at their doors to keep witches away. Uh, so if you hang one in your window or hang one in your door to keep away the, the bad spirits and the, and the witches, uh, keep it near your bed and you won't have bad dreams. Mine's on my desk. Is I it don't know what desk? that says. It's really good. good yeah. It can only be good. It's a hagstone. It can only be good. <laughs> and so in the event that you do find something um, that is of historic value or value or you know financial value what is the procedure what do you have to do actually i did find something just before christmas oh, go on then. Um, just before christmas i found what is thought to be a 16th century sword um 
uh, in on the photo I won't tell you where um, <laughs> and it, it's quite rare it's got a wooden handle inlaid with um, copper alloy wire and it's still got about half the blade so if you find something like that it's really really precious it's really special the fact that it's wooden something like that wouldn't survive anywhere else uh, so what you do is you get it to the Museum of London as fast as possible because it needs to be conserved something like that as soon as it comes out of the mud then it's I in took danger that, I took yeah. that in straight away because it has to be kept wet um, they're going to x-ray it find out if there's a maker's mark on it find out as much as, as possible I should say you need a permit to mudlark yes. uh, from the Port of London Authority uh, you have to be 12 to get a permit okay. um, so you can't really mudlark until you're 12 okay. it is a dangerous place to be it is mucky I mean, it's just such an extraordinary way of learning about the city you live in and the kind of history beneath your feet. You must just become more and more obsessed the more time you spend out here, I imagine, because you're always learning. You do. I mean, I call it a lucky dip, really, because yeah. you just never know what you're going to find next. And it, that's what keeps me coming back. And it's that moment, that moment you bend down to pick something up that hasn't been touched for, you know, sometimes thousands of years. And you know you're the first person to pick it up and hold it. It's, it's a really precious moment. What was the most interesting thing that you saw? Lots of little bits of tile, but the cutest thing I found was a tiny little pea-sized ball <laughs> that would have originally been fired out of a pistol. I'm not sure what, what date it was or indeed anything about, more technical about it, but it's really quite a heavy thing and it's in, in perfectly round. Apparently you're supposed to look for perfectly round things, um, which I like rolling around in my palm and which I did mm. sneak home in my pocket and put on the desk. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. But it wasn't we won't tell anyone. Funny. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, how did it feel to you finding a clay pipe? These are just everyday things, finding oyster shells. But did it feel like finding treasure? I think, you know, we all talk about history and how we're rethinking history at the moment in terms of the lived experience and trying to understand better how real people lived in real lives in society yeah. in in the past. And I've, I haven't really done many things actually that bring that to life so vividly because it was right there under my feet. And I yeah. could connect with someone who'd been there 400 years ago and yeah. decided to put a whalebone in the banks of the Thames so they could moor their boat or fired a pistol. And it just makes human life so much more alive and vivid. It's the stories of ordinary people like you and me, the sort of people who didn't leave an impact on history. That's what is so important. I mean, my, my family were over there in Wapping in the 19th century. And the fact that I know that they were walking around over there is just really exciting when I'm over there, you know, that, that I'm walking in their footsteps. I mean, this is a huge artery. This has sent ships out into the world and brought the world into London as well. And it was a very, very multicultural place. You know, the, the crew from all the different ships would get off there. They married local women. There was the original Chinatown over in Wapping until the Second World War when it was heavily bombed. That was all over there. I found an old um, Chinese coin over there. Actually right here I found a small 17th century Spanish coin a few years ago. So it gives you that sense of where people were coming from and where they were going to. Joe, I'm curious, it's been a few weeks now sort of what your takeaway is in the time since, like, what's stuck with you? I guess it's stuck with me that the Thames is eroding and that the 
the nature of the river is is changing according to kind of global climate change um in is in as much as that the banks are eroding in ways that they hadn't anticipated and the waters are higher and i guess mm. it just really made you think about what you leave behind and i think just to kind of celebrate the multiculturalism i was really ta- i was just really reassured and kind of made happy by the fact that this this area this tiny tiny area of ground in the middle of London should tell the stories of so many diverse and interesting ethnicities and nationalities and people mm. Joe, thank you so much for bringing us my lurking no problem <laughs> <laughs> if you enjoyed it squelch squelch <laughs> Tom Faber remembers exactly where he was when he first learned backgammon. It was a family holiday to Marrakesh when he was eight or nine, and they were in the souk, in the market. There were these beautiful, beautiful backgammon boards, and they were made of dark wood, and they were inlaid with mother of pearl. And we bought one, and then we went back to the hotel um, and sat in the sort of courtyard by a fountain. And um, my dad started teaching me the rules. That was my first memory of it. Tom is the FT's gaming critic. His job is to review games, often video games. But recently he wrote a piece about the transformative power of analog games. It's beautiful. I've put it in the show notes. His family has a long-running relationship with backgammon that goes back at least four generations. As far as I know, it goes back to my grandfather's father. So my grandfather was Hungarian and grew up in Budapest. And he liked to gamble. And I think the thing that he enjoyed about backgammon was the doubling dice, which you can use to up the ante and to work out how much money you're going to bet. And he learned it from his own father. Tom's grandfather fled Hungary for London after World War II. Eventually, he immigrated to America, where he taught Tom's dad backgammon, and so on and so on. And he said that no matter how much better he got, he never once beat my granddad which was different to me because I remember after I'd been playing with my dad for a couple of years, I started to beat him. So, uh, but no shade on my dad. Backgammon has become a piece of family heritage for Tom, passed down from one generation to the next. And recently, Tom started to ask the question, why do games exist? It sounds like a silly question, but really, humans have been passing down board games for thousands of years. There are vases from ancient Greece that show Achilles and Ajax playing dice. Then there's Mancala, that game with the small stones that you drop into grooves. It's most popular in Africa and Southeast Asia. Archaeologists found a Mancala board in a Neolithic dwelling in Jordan that dates back to possibly 5870 BCE. We just keep playing. Why? There's so many different lenses through which we can view games, and yet something about them always remains slightly out of reach, Mm -hmm. I find, when we try to define their power and their importance. Yeah. Take backgammon. The Greeks call it tavli, the Iraqis tauli, Arabs call it sheshbesh, the French call it jeu de tabs. It's at least 4,000 years old. I think it's just under 5,000 years was the earliest ancestor of backgammon was recorded in, I think, ancient Mesopotamia. 
Wow. You know, when, when I go to Greece or Armenia and you see these sort of older <laughs> men at, at tables playing backgammon all day, it's like in everyone's blood. I don't know. It like connects you to something. Like it's, it's, there's something so um, comforting about the consistency of it. Mm, and and the history of it as well, yeah. you know, and when you think about who they learned it from and who that was learned from and and you can trace the history of games with the history of migration, with the history of wars, you know, like backgammon, for example, originated in, in ancient Mesopotamia. I think the first example was found in what is now Iraq or Iran. And then it came to ancient Rome and then it died out and didn't quite land in Europe. And then when the Europeans came over to the Middle East again for the Crusades, as well as slaughtering a bunch of people, they brought back backgammon. Wow. Um, and that was when backgammon really took root in Western Europe. Tom, do you think there's anything about the mechanics of backgammon that's made it stick around for so long? Backgammon strikes me as such a great game because, one, it has a very elegant balance of luck and strategy. Um, whereas chess, for example, I always feel like I'm not quite clever enough to pay chess because it's uh, it, it's an unusual game. It's like Go, the Chinese game, in that it's entirely strategy. There is no element of luck. And I feel like I need some luck in order to beat someone who's smart at a game. But backgammon gives you a chance, even if you're not the smartest person in the room. And also the games are quite brief, which makes it quite attractive and replayable. And then the board is beautiful. Yeah. And I think the physicality and the aesthetics of these objects really matters as well. But not all games have staying power. And actually, the way we play over time has changed. Of course, there's the rise of video games. Gaming's now a $200 billion global industry. We'll have Tom on again to talk video games. But interestingly, there's also been a rise in analog games. New, more sophisticated board games specifically for adults. It also started in the 1990s. I think there's a number of reasons for that, but I would say one is actually in response to the increasing digitalization of our everyday lives. And it's exhausting looking at screens the whole time. And when that's eight hours of our workday or more, and then also five, six hours of our leisure time in the evening, it can be, you know, it rests your eyes looking at something that's not a digital screen. It relaxes you. And I think there's an idea of sharing a physical space of communion, coming together with a group of people, mm -hmm. breathing the same air, looking at the same thing. Games do this thing, like when you're doing yard work or stacking boxes with someone. They shift the dynamic of a social interaction. You're doing one thing, but it frees you up to talk about everything else. Tom noticed this in the hours he spent playing video games with his brother. This is slightly different because it's a screen game as well. But we'd be playing something with our hands and looking at the screen... But really, we'd be talking about our lives and we'd be talking about everything. And in a way, both concentrating on something together allowed us a more relaxed and free kind of um, dialogue and connection with each other than maybe we would have had in a sort of pressurized context of a one-on-one -on -one conversation. So I think board games can allow something similar in a way. It's like you kind of relax and let your guard down because you're in the mode for play. And when that happens, I think it actually increases your ability to, to empathize and to bond. It's really true. You know, when I was reading your piece, I was thinking about uh, there was one family vacation and my family and I were all like, 
we were all like mad at each other about something. It wasn't serious, but we were like kind of fighting. And I don't remember why, but I had this game with me that my friend had recommended called um, Timeline. Okay. I don't know if it's still around, but it's a card game and every card has a different period in history and you have to sort of put it in a timeline. Anyway, I brought it out and started playing with my family and it just cut everything. Like it cut all of the tension. Everybody started to like kind of come together around this thing. The historians were thrilled (laughs) for the level of power that they had. Um, Yeah, it did that exact thing where sort of like it gave everybody another place to put their attention so they could actually connect. And do you feel like the experience was that it put a halt to your attention and disagreement? Or do you feel like perhaps it more refocused those energies so you could express them through the game? Well, it was almost like we were all now doing something together. So suddenly we were, whether or not we were on a same team, we had this common goal of figuring out where these things went. So suddenly we all liked each other. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and it's sort of like, there's an idea that I like in the that I found when I was researching my piece, which is called The Magic Circle. And it's something that game designers talk about. And it's about the suspension of the rules of reality when you play a game. And that a game sort of creates this, almost like this force field of alternate reality around you. And everyone's consenting to this alternate set of rules, this alternate set of behaviors. And in that space, People can change, they can be different, they can express emotions that they wouldn't feel able to usually, Mm. you know, even if that's venting some of the anger and frustration you have at family members that normally wouldn't be uh, very welcome. (laughs) I want to really emphasize this point that games are more than just fun. They change us. They literally affect how we see the world or our relationships with other people. They even prompt chemical reactions in our body. And if a game isn't well-made it can prompt the wrong reaction. Let's take Monopoly. When I even think about Monopoly, I can feel the rage I carry of six-year-old me watching my sister obliterate all my capital. Can you tell me, why is Monopoly so infuriating? (laughs) I can definitely tell you why Monopoly is a bad game. So I I actually, one of my interviewees told me about a really interesting study, which I didn't get a chance to introduce into my piece. But she told me that there was a a study in 2019 that said that people who played old-fashioned board games, they actually, their levels of oxytocin, the chemical that makes you happy, actually went Mm -hmm. down while they were playing Monopoly. (laughs) So like Monopoly literally makes you scientifically unhappy to play. (laughs) And I think the reason for that, and something that we've seen remedied in recent games, which are designed in a more sophisticated way, is that Monopoly is a game where most of the time, one player takes the lead very quickly. Mm -hmm. But then there's a very long tail of people having to go around the board, slowly losing all of their money, knowing that they're (laughs) not going to win, feeling miserable. And then the worst thing about Monopoly is that you then get eliminated And then you're not even playing anymore at all, even as a pauper. (laughs) And you have to wait for everyone else to to finish the game. But if you compare it to a more recent game, like, I mean, the big success of the last few decades is the Settlers of Catan, um, which is the biggest example of this trend called Euro games. And when you compare it to Catan, Catan is a game in which you trade with other players, which is about collaboration as much as competition. 
No one is eliminated before the end. And the fact that you're always trading also means that you're always involved, even when it's not your turn. Um, so yeah, I think yeah. Monopoly is not the one for me, at least. Modern game designers are creating a lot of today's games this way, collaboratively. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that we want something kind of different now. The world is exhausting. There's no research that I've seen on this, but, but it's easy to lay that on top of a, a, an age which feels increasingly fractious and polarized and ask if maybe we want to be kind to each other and help each other, even in our entertainment time, rather than play at games where we're trying to take each other down and destroy each other. Ultimately, though, it's about play. Catan, backgammon, Minecraft, whatever your preference, each of them taps into the same basic primal human need. Play and diversion and entertainment have always been fundamental to being a human being. And while lots of academics will say all of the benefits of playing games, that they can educate you and that they can make you a better person and change your perspective and stuff, I also think we don't need to make excuses for games being anything other than fun. Yeah. Because fun is, is profound in a way. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend from the Financial Times. Next week, we'll have a fun episode for you about Peloton and how exercise culture has changed. And we also talk about bad econ books. I'm sure you know the kind. They're the ones that promise you can get rich quick in five steps or less by meditating, who moved my cheese, hashtag girl boss, that kind. If there's a book or show or artist you love right now or an idea you're thinking about that you want to see us wrestle with on the show, I would love to hear it. You can contact me in a few ways. By email, we're at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod, and I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. You can find a lot of behind-the-scenes podcast content and culture conversations on my Instagram. If you want to read the FT, I have some great special offers specifically for listeners of the show, no matter where you live around the world. I have 50% off a digital subscription, a $1 or one pound or one euro trial, and a lot more. These offers are at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Make sure to use that link specifically. It's in the show notes as are links to everything mentioned today. If you like the show, please do follow and subscribe to FT Weekend. Tell your friends about it. Recommend it on your social feeds and tag us. These things seem small, but I can't tell you how much they help support us. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and this is my incredible team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith and Josh Gabbert-Doyen are our assistant producers. And Breen Turner is our sound engineer with original music by Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley, Manuela Saragosa, and Topher Forges are our executive producers, and we have editorial direction from Renee Kaplan. We'll find each other again next week.